This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Tracksmith, a proudly independent running brand that makes high-performance products for amateur athletes striving to be their best. You put in the time and the effort and you push yourself as far as you, you possibly can, and then you have a result that you can be proud of at the end of that. This is Matt Taylor, the founder of Tracksmith and a lifelong runner. He created the company to support amateurs like himself along their training journeys. That last part of the journey really is when someone is, I want to squeak out as many seconds as I possibly can. And with that just comes this really, really rich experience for the athlete. You really are thinking about all of the little things that you might want to do to run as fast as you possibly can. Tracksmith helps you do this by crafting exceptional technical apparel designed so you don't ever think about it. The standard for us is always like if you can go for a run and you literally don't notice what you're wearing, that's like that's the sign that that we nailed a product. Take their session shorts, constructed from an Italian nylon knit that's remarkably soft and that stretches and moves with you. You put them on and you head out the door and you're never thinking about their comfort, about something that's rubbing the wrong way, about chafing or anything like that. Then there are the hairier tops, created from a unique blend of odor-resistant and lightweight merino wool that happily puts up with all the miles you can make time for. They dry really quickly. You can just sort of hang them up after your run and, and the next morning they're ready to go again. It's a top that you could literally wear an entire week, every run, and not have to wash it. Learn more about Tracksmith's high-performance products and all their work to support amateur athletes at tracksmith.com. From Outside Magazine, this is the Outside Podcast. Over the last 11 days, there's been heated dialogue in this country about the chaos that erupted in Afghanistan as U.S. forces made their speedy withdrawal. Lots of finger-pointing about who's at fault for the ugly end to the two-decade war. Anger over the enormous price and sorrow for the thousands of lives lost. Some of the most heartbreaking discussions have focused on the enduring impact of the fighting on members of the U.S. military who served in Afghanistan. This week, we have a story about one American soldier who came back from the war with deep psychological wounds. What happened to him on the battlefield was destroying the life he'd built at home with his partner. At his lowest point, he sought out the one place where he could be himself again the natural world. This piece is the last installment in our Summer of Love miniseries created by Outside Magazine contributing editor Florence Williams. She takes it from here. Of all the challenges we might face in romantic relationships, perhaps the most difficult is when somebody changes. They might grow in unexpected ways, or the change might be caused by trauma. Psychologists believe that post-traumatic stress is one of the few things that can actually alter our core personalities, at least for a while. And it can express itself in a host of ways that make having or maintaining relationships really difficult. When Captain Luke Bouchatz came home from the war in Afghanistan, he was seemingly in one piece, but he was struggling more than either he or his wife Amy realized. And slowly, their marriage, which had begun shortly before he deployed, started unraveling. I, I wanted to numb as much as possible. And, and the way that I did that was by 
pornography or I would use anything I could to distract myself. Um, but the reality was, was all I was doing was destroying my neurological pathways to be able to have real connection with any human being. My inability to communicate, a choosing to not communicate my pain, my trauma, my shame, my guilt, my fears with my spouse, that lack of communication eventually led to a breakdown in our marriage. Amy was like, you don't get to live here as long as you're going to continue to be in a place where you are not dealing with your trauma. And that brought us to crisis. It was a sad choke point in what had started out as a sweet coupling. Luke and Amy had been friends at the small Christian college they both attended in Michigan, forming a connection in the aftermath of 9-11. That event would strongly inform their career paths, Amy in journalism, Luke in the Army. And after graduating, they stayed in touch. He joined the U.S. Army, and I started writing him letters because I felt sorry for him. So, <laughs> because, you know, going to basic training is sort of a lonely thing. And I was like, oh, well, we'll all write to Luke. That's nice. And we started communicating that way. And I found, you know, he was nice and wrote me back and we talked on the phone and I just, I fell for this guy. And, uh, you know, I joke now that I fell for a guy in uniform, but it wasn't really the uniform, right? It was the, it was the guy wearing it. There are so many things that drove me to Amy, um, but probably the, the biggest thing was that she was a person that is compassionate. She has passion and compassion, which often are not similar qualities in a person. But when those two things can come together to really drive someone's focus in their life, they can really accomplish a lot of things. And that's what I saw in Amy. And that was something that was contagious that I, I wanted to be a part of. Luke was stationed at a base in Washington state, while Amy was living across the country in Washington, D.C., building a reporting career at The Washington Times and Politico. And I just kind of threw it all away and followed him to Washington State. I had this just incredible faith that this was the right thing to do. Yeah, so I moved out there. Uh, we got married about five months later, and he deployed a year almost to the day after that. They were in their mid-20s. Life was moving fast, and it was about to get faster. This is sort of a very military thing, to, military family thing to do. If you are married and you are facing a deployment, it makes absolutely perfect sense to have a baby as soon as possible. So <laughs> sitting here, retrospect, obviously, I'm so glad that my 12-year-old, now 12-year-old, is in my life. But that was not the smartest life planning. But there's something deep inside you that says, if this person doesn't make it home, I want to make sure that I have something, you know, this kid to remember him by. It's really this just this gut instinct to do that. Our son was born April 22nd, 2009, and he deployed about five weeks later. It was an intense time to be in southern Afghanistan. Attacks by insurgents had doubled over the previous year, making 2009 the deadliest year of the war for Afghan civilians. And this marked the start of the surge of U.S. forces. Between 2009 and 2012, 
over 1,500 Americans would be killed. It was hot and heavy from the second they stepped off of the truck in their forward operating base in uh, southern Afghanistan. And within just a couple of weeks, people were getting the knock on the door and emails were flooding in that we had faced um, casualties in the unit. And that that can mean either injuries or deaths. And for us, it was both. We lost a lot of soldiers. It was it was it was a lot of soldiers. And with the surge into Afghanistan, that wasn't unexpected. But at the same time, the amount of losses that our unit took was was high. Twice, Luke was inside armored vehicles that were rocked by explosions that would have lingering impacts on him, though he seemed to escape with no injuries. After seven months, he was called back to Washington state to be the rear detachment commander. That means he's in charge of readying troops still on base and also looking out for the military families of deployed soldiers. What I came back from was a combat environment, and I went into a environment where I now had to see the mothers and wives and children of literally of soldiers that died in my arms. That was difficult. And at the same time, go into hospital rooms with men that I had been with in combat when they were grievously wounded. It built shame, guilt, you know, because you're you're physically okay. Like, I I was blown up a couple times, but I physically walked away from them on the outside just fine, right? Now, I I deal with residual effects from traumatic brain injury, but most soldiers that have been blown up do deal with that. That's, That's pretty normal. It was some of those other things that really started to tear away at really the soul and tear away at the identity of who I was previous to that deployment. I'm sure that Amy saw a complete change in me. When someone comes home after, you know, seven months absence and they've experienced so much trauma and you've experienced your own trauma, you start to wonder if the thing that you thought you had before was in your imagination. And yeah, there's just no time to rest, no time to say, hey, what did this deployment mean or do to me? No, I had never even heard of traumatic brain injury. No one had mentioned that it might be a possibility. And we just didn't think about it. And so we just powered on through, uh, powered through family life, started to try to have another baby, powered through just every life event. I didn't feel the change. I didn't see the change it was a couple years down the road that like things really started to manifest themselves in ways that i couldn't necessarily pinpoint it started with you know lapses in memory and ability to deal with short term retention of basic stuff like don't leave your gym bag sitting on the back of the car and drive away every day because then it's going to be in the ditch somewhere and you're going to have to get another uniform and boots and whatever. But it also manifests itself in addiction. It manifested itself in an inability to cope with human relationships, an inability to connect with other human beings, especially my wife. You look at yourself in the mirror every day and you're like, well, I have all my parts. So whatever's wrong with me, I just need to stuff down inside and do my job. I got to focus on the mission that I have. 
which is to train soldiers and get ready to go back and fight more. And it tears away at you, and eventually it tears away at the people in your life because they're the collateral damage. So what did that look like for your marriage? What it looked like for me was my safe space was at work because at work was an environment I could control. I didn't feel that at home because Amy is her own person and I don't get to control that. Um, My sons are their own people. They're autonomous, unlike soldiers that are going to follow orders. In 2013, three years after Luke had returned home, he and Amy were living in Tennessee, near a base in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, with their two young boys. Luke was eager for his next deployment to start so he could get back to combat and escape the shame and guilt that plagued him. But chest pains sent him to the doctor, and he found out that his arteries were 90% blocked. He needed two emergency stents. He was 29 years old. It was a devastating blow. At the time, I felt like my entire identity as a soldier had been stripped away from me. This whole thing that I'd been training and honing my skills and my mind and my body to for years was taken off the table. Luke was relegated to being an operations manager, training others and doing paperwork. He hated it. From there, I just kind of started to spin out of control over the next 10 months. If you saw me Monday through Friday working, you would say, yeah, that guy's crushing it. And at the same time, like mentally inside my head, inside my soul, I was just at war every single day with myself. He tried to numb himself with alcohol and sex, not always with his wife. It was that special kind of hell that exists when you're betrayed by your spouse. He sat on the floor of our bedroom and cried and told me that he didn't know why he had come home. He didn't want to be here anymore. It was really, it was like an out-of-body experience for me that I'm, I can see myself standing in this room, being a part of this conversation, watching this person who I love so much struggle so hard and not, clearly not understand why he's still having such a hard time. I was thinking about death as a outlet was just an everyday occurrence. I was at a point where I was broken. Not just, not so much broken. Broken is fine. We're all broken. Yeah, but, but not dealing. Yeah, like the stat, continuous status of I'm being broken and being okay with that. Never seeking to heal, never seeking to get better. Not just being broken, but willingly, willfully continuing to be broken. They tried couples counseling, but it didn't help. So friends and family intervened, hoping to stop Luke from continuing on his path of destruction. When I was confronted with that, like, you have a problem and you have to stop or you're going to lose your family, it was, okay, well, if I do this and just lie about it, I can stick a fist in the dike and we'll be okay. And it took a year of being like, nope, I am really broken and I am really a liar, and I am really full of trauma, and I'm not dealing with it before I was at a point where the brokenness was enough to be like, okay, I have to 
I have to deal with this. Amy and Luke separated. He moved out of their house and into a friend's basement. And that was his rock-bottom point. Ultimately, it's what got him to take the kinds of action needed to rebuild his life. I think that was key and pivotal in me being able to take very deliberate steps to start the healing process and the reconciliation process and the process of taking back the mantle of being a husband and father in our relationship. And you knew you didn't want to give it up? Yes, I knew I did not want to give it up. How did you move toward reconciliation at that point? One of the the catalysts for truth was putting us in an environment where I could remove all of the safeguards that daily routine provide in our lives to be able to be open and honest with my spouse. And the place that I always found that, the place where I find the ability to tell my story truthfully, I find that in nature. We'll be right back. When passionate runner Matt Taylor founded Tracksmith, he always knew he wanted to do more than just create high-performance products for runners. He wanted to support them along their entire training journey, which is exactly what happened when he opened the Track House, a retail store and community hub in Boston that quickly became a hangout for Boston Marathon runners. A lot of our community locally would come in prior to the marathon and they would ask about training, they would ask about what to wear, they would ask about the course. Soon, Tracksmith was bringing in expert speakers and leading runs on the course. Today, that same spirit is behind 100 Days, a series of newsletters from Tracksmith that prepares runners for all six major marathons happening this fall. We found an author for each one that had some interesting and local expertise on that particular course. This year, Tracksmith is expanding its special collections of training and racing apparel for the Boston, New York, Chicago, London, Berlin, and Tokyo marathons, and also creating pop-ups at Chicago, Boston, and New York to give amateur competitors a gathering space. The best moments for me are after the marathon, and we all sit around, you know, into the evening talking about the highs and the lows, and that's just a really special moment. There's this amazing camaraderie and community that comes with that shared suffering that we all go through. Learn more about Tracksmith's high-performance products and find the inspiration you need to run your best at tracksmith.com. Luke and Amy stayed separated for only a few weeks before Amy reluctantly agreed to try and work things out. Luke had been thinking hard about what he could offer and the best place to talk it through. They'd enjoyed some of their best family times camping. He knew that getting outdoors opened up something inside him. It was a place where I could reconnect with a part of me that often was buried by the trauma, by the shame, by the guilt. I felt like nature reset the pace of life to a point where I could talk about the shame and the guilt and the pain. Luke also made a couple of big decisions. First, he would resign from active duty in the Army. It was just a catalyst for too many negative things in his life. And second, he'd invite Amy on a bigger adventure, just the two of them, 
so they could even see if they were still able to connect emotionally. I asked her if she would go with me over to the Ozarks for a week, and we would just spend a week paddling down the Buffalo National River. It was a time where we were we were either going to make it or we weren't, and that was going to be it. He was still a great dad, and I've got these kids who wanted a dad, who needed a dad. And if I could salvage a relationship to be able to give them that, I wanted to do it. But Amy wasn't a huge fan of paddling. This is one of the reasons that Luke picked the Buffalo River. Its lower section is a national park. And Amy had been collecting National Park passport stamps. Because Amy's got this National Parks stamp club. I don't know if, <laughs> if you've heard of this. And um, so an incentive hey <laughs> for Amy to come with me on this trip was that she could punch some stamps. Because, like, I didn't know if I could convince her to do this thing. And I needed to incentivize her, I, I, I thought, because... I mean, I'm the doofus here, right? I'm the guy that's been screwing up the relationship. I'm the guy that owns the burden of the majority of offenses here. How did it feel to be out there? What nature has always done is it kind of strips away the routine of life, which is kind of like taking off armor. And you take that thing off and you suddenly feel like you're about to float into the air. It's, it's as if you're able to remove the burden of the weight of your own shame and you are suddenly in a place where you can let that go. Mm. And in letting it go, you are able to communicate about it. I, I think just the freedom to focus on each other and just the freedom to see and you know, to remember why I liked this guy. I have this memory of floating down this river just behind Luke. I just remember looking at him in the context of this canyon and just having this great adventure and I got my stamps the day before. Okay. And <laughs> I was having a good time at this point, right? I was I was feeling reconnected a little bit to him and disconnected from our all of our problems back home. And it just it gave me this context to be like, okay, like, you know, I think this can work. I think that we can if we find a way to have this moment all the time, right? To extend this perspective to bigger than right now, that I can make this work, that I can keep him in this context of this river in a way that translates to our whole life, then I can I can do this. We can give this a shot. I know exactly what canyon she's talking about. We were in this canyon at this big S turn, and there were 85, 90 foot high walls on either side of the canyon. It was as if the whole world was shut out from us at that minute, and all that existed was the river, us, and, and God between us there. And that was it. And when that happens, it's not your story and her story. It's not my story and Amy's story. It's our story. From that point, it is 
we are doing this together and our story forward is this. Our time was about having this expansive moment where we were in the context of the natural world. Two little people with their little problems in this big river and it it just it opened up my ability to see him and to see what he was dealing with and to understand the burden that he was bearing psychologically and to feel compassion in a way that I didn't have the capacity to do. And I was in the context of if if I can keep this honesty and truth and openness and commitment and communication, then we can move towards healing and truth. I'm convinced at this point that if you have the right mindset and the intentionality to reset how you see yourselves and how you use nature to create that view of you um, and your relationships, that that's entirely possible with whatever landscape you happen to have. So it's not it's not just being in the canyon that's enough. That that's what kind of gets you to the place where you value the change. Right. That's the aha moment, right? The daily practice of that aha moment is the intentionality of stepping outside your front door, of asking yourself what is important, and of using just the nature you have around you to help you remember that. It has to be an inspiration towards a lifestyle. The trip down the Buffalo River really did set Amy and Luke on a new path. In 2016, they moved with their boys to the outskirts of Anchorage, Alaska. Early last year, Amy launched a podcast called Humans Outside, where she talks to guests transformed by the outdoors. Luke has also found a new mission. He runs a nonprofit with other veterans called Remedy Alpine. We take Alaskan veterans and military into the backcountry of, of Alaska, into its wild spaces. It's selfish work because that's also where I reconnect with my purpose. I'm able to come home re-engaged, reinvigorated, and ready to engage in my human relationships again with my important people, but at the same time, hopefully give some perspective to veterans that allows them to do the same. So you two now, you have two kids, mm. you're running a business. <laughs> how how are you doing now? How's your marriage? Yeah, I, I mean, I say it's a work in progress. You know, we still struggle just like anyone else to communicate. We still tr- struggle to keep that stuff in context. I think that we're a lot better and a lot, um, I, you know, I think we're healing. And that's an active, active experience. The first year that you get married, the first five years that you're married, you think that the person you married is, you have an image of them that probably isn't right. And it changes over time. And I would say I'm in a place where I love my wife. I'm in love with my love wife. And I also really like her. That was Florence Williams speaking with Luke and Amy Bouchatz. Florence reported and produced this story, which was edited by me, Michael Roberts. Music by Robbie Carver. 
You can learn more about Remedy Alpine and make a donation to fund their work with military veterans at RemedyAlpine.org. Amy Bashatz's podcast, Humans Outside, is available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Outside Podcast was brought to you by Tracksmith, a proudly independent running brand that makes high-performance products for amateur athletes striving to be their best. Learn more at tracksmith.com. The Outside Podcast is made possible by the support of our Outside Plus members. Learn more and join at outsideonline.com slash outside P-L-U-S. Outside Podcast listeners get 25% off an Outside Plus membership with the coupon code OUTSIDEPOD. That's OUTSIDEPOD, all lowercase.